Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode one of Tom Mullen Talks Movies. I'm very excited to be doing this first episode, and before we get into uh, tonight's film, which is The Bride of Frankenstein, a timely choice on the day before Halloween, and really an excellent film to watch any time of the year, this one was produced by Universal Pictures. Uh, it was directed by James Whale, my favorite director of all time. Uh, and it stars Boris Karloff reprising his role as the Frankenstein monster. Billed for this one uh, simply as Karloff, by the way. That's how big a star he had become by uh, by this time in 1935. Just four years after he, he came out of relative obscurity uh, with his performance as the monster. Colin Clive uh, revises his role as Henry Frankenstein, creator of the monster, and the rest of the cast is new. Dwight Fry, who played Fritz, uh, the assistant in the original movie, plays a different character, but we have a different actress, Valerie Hobson, as Elizabeth. Ernest Thesiger plays a new character called Dr. Praetorius, and you have Elsa Lanchester in a dual role as both Mary Shelley author of the novel Frankenstein, and uh, also as the monster's bride at the end of the film. Uh, just a great supporting cast in this one. Uh, Jack Pierce returns to do the makeup for the monster. He would uh, go on to um, do makeup for Universal into the mid-40s. And you've got a screenplay here by William Hurlbut. Uh, based on his uh, his story, uh, uh, along with John Balderston, and of course, this is all inspired by um, the novel Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Although there is quite a departure in the, in the plot, there are some elements uh, uh, from the original movie or from the original novel. In fact, this this film probably follows. Uh, themes from the original novel a little more closely than the first movie Frankenstein in 1931. The Bride of Frankenstein also plays a larger role in the story of uh, the development of this podcast because I had originally intended to do a more focused podcast on strictly the horror movies of the 1920s through 1940s. So the Universal Classics and also some by other uh, studios, such as, let's say, the um, Je Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, at, from Paramount, starring Frederick March and, and all those classics. I'd been a fan of these films for all of my life, practically, as, as old as, or as, as long as I can remember, uh, starting in the early 1970s when I was six or seven years old. I first saw them, this is in the pre-cable years, by the way, where the only way to see some of these movies was to stay up late on uh, on Friday night. They had a, a, a series called Friday Fright Night, and I would be allowed to stay up past uh, the 11 o'clock news when they would play often some of these old movies. Um, that's where I first saw the original Dracula, or I shouldn't say the original, but the Bela Lugosi version of Dracula. I later saw the, um, the 1922, uh, Nosferatu with Max Schreck. 
but um, I immediately were just fell in love with these these films, <clears throat> and I even I I bought a book when it came out. The way we used to get books in grade school back then, there was like kind of a newsletter, and you would check off the books that you would, you wanted and pay a few bucks, and then they would be delivered to the classroom. So. Um, I, I got a book called great monsters of the movies by a guy named Edward Edelson when I was seven or eight years old, uh, at, at the most. And I literally carried this book around with me all through grade school it used to be in my back pocket. And at one point the, I, I had read it so many times the cover fell off and I eventually made my own new cover and tried to draw what was on the original cover, uh, which is a picture of King Kong uh, by myself. And I have absolutely no talent at drawing. But somewhere over the years, this book got lost. And I had it well into my adult life. And then I found it um, on Amazon and ordered a different copy. And this looks like it probably, uh, given how yellow the pages are, uh, is that old. Um, probably one of those 1970s printings. Um, and it's obviously it's it, this gentleman that wrote it, Edward Edelson is a, uh, respected, uh, writer. I, I can't remember if it's on, uh, films or, or other subjects, but this is obviously aimed at children. It's very, very simple, easy to read. It's not very long. It's got a lot of pictures. Um, uh, but in any case, I was a, a big fan the Frankenstein movies, the Wolfman, the Mummy movies, uh, the Dracula movies, really like the uh, Universal series. <clears throat> and so I decided I was going to do this podcast. And of course, my all-time favorite out of all of these is The Bride of Frankenstein. And and so when I was getting ready to do the first episode, I thought, well, I better go and find if there are other podcasts that are doing anything similar and I searched on Apple Podcasts just the title, The Bride of Frankenstein, and I discovered the Borgo Pass podcast, which is wholly devoted to the exact same movies that I was going to do. So um, I highly recommend it. They do a great job. If you're a uh, listener of my other podcast, Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, I should warn you that these are... Uh, two Hollywood gentlemen. They're very politically liberal. They sometimes let that slip into their analysis of the films. Uh, all the things that that might turn, especially conservatives, heads around, and uh, maybe even uh, libertarians on um, on occasion. But I got to tell you, they just do a fantastic job, and so much so that I felt like there was no reason to to uh, duplicate their work. Um, and one of the uh, hosts is a, a film producer and the other one started out as a fan of the show and uh, eventually became the co-host. And uh, so Borgo Pass podcast, they did an episode. Uh, I think they did a two part episode on Bride of Frankenstein, about three hours of content. I'm going to cover things that were they did not cover in their podcast. Just my take on the film and some of the things that I think are important, especially uh, from uh, kind of a literary standpoint, not only comparing the film to the book, 
but also what I think um, James Whale and the writers were doing with this with this film. It it really is a work of art, and to me, not only far surpasses the original, which is you know considered a classic itself, but probably far surpasses anything else during this uh, golden age of uh, of Hollywood uh, horror films. Um, it's definitely my favorite. I think there's just so much more to it than any other film. And so some of the things I'm going to talk about here, just the overall themes, and we'll, we'll walk through the plot and, uh, and I'll point some of these out. But I mean, one of the things that, that whale hits the viewer over the head with is the monster is a Christ figure. So what what exactly does that mean? He shows you some imagery that definitely, um, like I said, it's not subtle. Okay, um, there's a couple of parts in the movie where, you know, if you didn't catch it the first time, he just makes sure that you don't miss it. So why is the monster depicted as a Christ figure? Uh, we're going to talk about whales kind of taking all of. The Western civilization, classical liberal uh, values, and tipping them on their heads, and Christian values, and um, it's it you know the film is is really a black comedy. It's I wouldn't call it something that's going to scare you out of your chair. Really, none of the classic films do that. They're they're much more um, they're they're much more drama and. Um, and atmospheric than they are terrifying. Um, and that's, you know, one of the reasons I like them. I love a good terrifying film, by the way, don't get me wrong. But <clears throat> so this film starts out in a very interesting way. It starts out uh, during an episode where uh, George Lord uh, Byron um is uh, with Percy Shelley and Mary Shelley in this Swiss castle. And this is based on real events where they spent a summer there. There was a movie made called Haunted Summer. I, I believe that was uh, the title about this episode. It's it's documented in lots of books. And then also it's been kind of um, dramatized in several different ways. Tim Powers' books uh, take... Uh, you know, uh, a, a, a kind of supernatural uh, take on that. So <clears throat> uh, th- this actually did happen, though. The, these people did spend uh, this summer uh, next to a lake in, uh, in Switzerland. And along with them was uh, John Polidori, John who was Byron's physician. Um, and over the course of this summer, they decided to amuse themselves by writing uh, horror stories. Each one of them was supposed to go and write uh, something scary. And Polidori actually writes a book called The Vampire, which greatly influenced the vampire legends um, that w- that we know of today. And Polidori's story is written in 1819, so it's almost 80 years before Bram Stoker would write Dracula. Uh, So definitely foundational in the vampire legends. They don't deal with Polidori in the movie. He doesn't appear in the movie, 
But during the same summer, Mary Shelley first uh, wrote the story that became Frankenstein. And the, f- the film starts out at a point where she's already written the story. And, uh, you know, there, it, there's a storm going on outside. And, you know, the Mary Shelley character played by Elsa Lanchester, who also will play the bride in this movie, uh, the bride of Frankenstein. Um, she's afraid of, uh, the lightning and she's afraid of the dark. And then she pricks her finger and, you know, uh, kind of, um, makes a big deal about it. And, and kind of the shtick there is that, oh my gosh, this frail little thing that's afraid of the dark and the lightning, you know, was able to write this terrifying story that, uh, the Byron character says, sent his blood into icy something or other chills. And there's a, there's a great visual scene when she pricks her finger during this sequence where um, both of them rush to her to either one of her, her side. And she's standing there and her arms are out and uh, the Percy Shelley character is, is holding her hand and I think he's dabbing her cut finger with uh, a handkerchief and, and uh, the Byron character is holding her other hand and they're kind of stretched out. And this is uh, a foreshadowing of when they create the bride at the end of the movie, where it's Dr. Frankenstein and Dr. Pretorius on either side of her. And it's the exact same pose for all three characters with her in the middle and her arms out. So just a nice little visual uh, thing that Whale threw in there. But she says that Oh, you know, the story didn't end. Now, I should say that if you've seen the first film and, you know, there's going to be spoilers throughout this podcast. So, um, you know, anybody who hasn't seen the film, I suggest you watch both Frankenstein and The Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, And we're talking about Frankenstein 1931 starring Colin Clive, Boris Karloff, Mae Clark and and Frankenstein, uh, Bride of Frankenstein 1935 starring Colin Clive, Boris Karloff, Valerie Hobson, Ernest Thesiger. So um, watch them first before you you really listen on to this podcast because you want to kind of let the movie wash over you. You I don't want to spoil your enjoyment of it. And then um, you can come back here and see if you you agree or disagree with some of the things I've said or whether you have different ideas about what's going on there. Um, but in any case, the first film ends with, uh, the monster carrying Henry Frankenstein. And, and one of the things the films does is it flips the first names of two of the main characters from the book. So in the book, Dr. Frankenstein's name is Victor Frankenstein. In fact, he's not a doctor because he leaves medical school. I guess he probably wouldn't be in these films either, uh, but they call him that. Um, so, um, the name is Victor Frankenstein and his best friend is, I believe it's Henry, it's Henry. I think it's Henry Clerval is his best friend in the book. I haven't read the book in decades, but I have read it more than once. And, um, so for whatever reason, they switch names and in this Frankenstein's name is Henry and his best friend's name is Victor. And so Henry Frankenstein uh, is carried off by the monster at the end into a, a windmill 
and the villagers with the torches and the pitchforks and the dogs uh, surround the windmill and they eventually um, set it on fire. Um, in fact, before they do that, uh, the Frankenstein monster throws Henry Frankenstein off the second story uh, uh, platform of the windmill and he actually hits one of the blades on the way down or or the dummy they use does anyway. And it doesn't look like it's going to end well. And uh, I believe originally that was supposed to be his, he was supposed to be dead and anybody in real life would be if they hit the blade of this huge windmill the way um, his body does. But uh, at the end of that movie, um, the villagers then set fire to this windmill and then not satisfied with such a sad ending, or maybe it didn't screen well, they they shot uh, additional footage to show that Henry had actually survived the um, the fall and and and, and the uh, almost impalement on this windmill blade. And an interesting little fact was that Colin Clive was doing a play called Journey's End, which uh, he he eventually starred in the movie as well that James Whale. Uh, directed. And he was on a very tight schedule to shoot the original Frankenstein movie. And uh, I, I read Colin Clive's biography. And he really, you know, you have to remember, we're talking 1931, you don't have uh, jet airplanes yet. So he had this harrowing journey from England over on a boat, and then he gets on a train and he has to go all the way across the country to Hollywood. And he does this all in a couple of days, four or five days. He arrives like the night before uh, they begin shooting and he shows up the next day to shoot the movie. They shoot for however many weeks they have for the movie. And then he's got to leave. So he leaves. They screen the movie and decide to um, augment the ending and not have his character die. Well, he's gone. He's not available. So they actually use somebody else in that last scene. If you look very closely, there's a a different actor. I believe he was an actor in a lot of Westerns who's laying in the bed, um, recuperating from, you know, the, the harrowing experience. That's not Colin Clive in that scene. That's somebody else. Um, and they shoot it from far enough away that most people wouldn't notice. So in any case, that's how the movie ends. And again, I said the the windmill's on fire and the monster is presumed dead. They show him, you know, on the second floor of the windmill as it starts to collapse because of the fire and a beam comes down and lands on top of him and we are to presume he's dead. And that's, of course, how the uh, producers um, and the director uh, intended it at the end of that movie, there was no sequel planned in 1931 when they shot Frankenstein. So the, the second story as told by the Mary Shelley character starts off with the burning windmill. And we go back to the scene and all of the villagers are there. And of course, um, if there's a flaw in Bride of Frankenstein, it's a flaw in many of James Whale's movies. And James Whale's my favorite director for a number of reasons, and not just his horror films. Everything he did was great. One of the only musicals I can actually sit all the way through is his version of Showboat, which is just another masterpiece. 
but um uh you know you know connor is is the one he just seemed to find her hilarious i can't believe most people today wouldn't find her utterly annoying um she plays a a big part on the beginning of the movie as kind of comic relief um it, it she's kind the whole movie is kind of that dark comedy feel and she gives it that almost campy and um and dark comedy you know madcap whatever she she's got a very high screechy voice and you'll just have to experience it yourself if if I can't describe it better, but I don't find Una O'Connor funny and I find her a little distracting from the rest of the film, but she does provide a nice counterpoint to how much darkness there is and how much, you know, uh, Gothic mood there is in the film. So, you know, maybe if it was just toned down a little, it'd be better. In any case, who am I? Um, this is James Whale we're talking about. But she's there at the burning windmill yelling that she wants to see the monster's bones and she won't rest easy till he's dead. And uh, we've got E.E. E. Clive who comes up and he's just the, the, the great, you know, British with the mustache kind of whoop, 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 uh, that kind of guy. And and he's, you know, completely full of himself. He's the Burgermaster now. It's a different actor than the one that played the Burgermaster in the original film. And he's out there saying, you know, I came by and you're lucky I was here to protect life and property from this, this strange man you call the monster who's dead. Now everybody go home. It's all over with, that kind of thing. So the crowd disperses and um, there, there's one uh, villager left. Well, I should say two, which is uh, the father of the Maria character from the first movie. Now this is the, the character that the monster throws into the lake, um, not understanding that he's or intending to hurt the little girl, but they're throwing the flowers in the water and she, she runs out of flowers. So he throws her in the water. And I think we're supposed to take away from that, that he's obviously horrified that he has hurt the girl and he runs away screaming while her father who was somebody that, you know, in the first movie that looked like he could have a seven or eight-year-old daughter is now middle-aged, as is the wife. Uh, so the two acting um, casting choices there were a little weird for me because they both look like they're in their, at least in their late 50s, if not older. And they're supposed to be the same parents of this little girl. Uh, and and this this... Uh, action is supposed to be taking place the day or so after the little girl died. In any case, the father wants to go down and make sure the monster's dead underneath the um, windmill. There happens to be like some body of water underground cistern or, or, or Creek or something. And uh, he falls down into the, this water underneath the windmill. And of course we see that the monster is still alive who then, kills him and uh in another bit of kind of dark comedy uh the wife is yelling down for the husband and she um she's puts her hand down to help her husband out of this uh pit he's fallen into and it's actually the monster who's 
uh, hand she's who's who she's helping out of the the pit and the monster then throws her in. <laughs> so um, so that doesn't end well. The whole family now has been uh, killed by the monster. And as he starts to walk away from the windmill, he encounters Una O'Connor, who makes a lot of funny faces and screams and runs away. And the monster just has this look on his face like, what was that? <laughs> again, this is some of the comedy that um, that uh, Whale throws in. And this this truly is funny because he the look on the monster's face when he encounters Yuno O'Connor is probably the same look most of us would have if we uh, encountered Yuno O'Connor's character in real life. So the monster is now free and on the loose, and we go from there to uh, the scene where Henry Frankenstein is brought home, at first presumed dead, and then um, we've got another great little kind of throwback, callback to the original movie where Henry's hand moves just as the monsters had when he brought it to life in the first movie, and you know Connor screams that he's alive. And so, of course, that's an allusion back to the famous scene with Colin Clive yelling, it's alive, it's alive uh, in the first movie. So uh, Henry goes, uh, you know, some time passes. Henry is recuperating in his room. He's not yet married, but he seems to be cozily shacked up with um, uh, Elizabeth, who's now played by Valerie Hobson. Uh, May Clark played Elizabeth in the original. And they get their first visit from Dr. Pretorius. And uh, Pretorius is played by Ernest Thesiger and really at many times just steals the film uh, in so many ways. Uh, He's got this over-the-top performance that, you know, fits perfectly with the character. Um, So he comes in and he's there to see Henry Frankenstein to uh, petition him to come join his own experiments in creating life. And uh, at first Henry says, no, 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 no. I don't want anything more to do with this. And then finally Praetorius convinces him uh, to come to his uh, apartment or house and see what Praetorius has done. And then we get this whole scene with a number of creations by Pretorius and what they are more um, natural looking human beings. They're not scarred. They weren't put together from corpses. They were, he says they were grown from seeds as nature does, but they're all miniature. They're all six or seven inches high. And uh, there's a great, you know, he brings out, you know, first the king and then the queen and then he's got one that he calls the bishop that um, he says that this one looks so disapprovingly on the other two that uh, we made him a bishop, you know. And the king is always trying to get at the queen who doesn't seem to be too interested. They're all in these glass jars to keep them apart, but, but the king keeps escaping from his glass jar. Uh, and at one point he brings out one and he says, this one is the very devil, he bears a close resemblance to me, don't you think? Or do I flatter myself? That's an important line because in the symbolic uh, structure of this film, um, 
Thesiger, of course, is the devil. He is the tempter. He tempts Henry into going back to do the forbidden thing. Um, and he Henry is going to need to be saved from the devil, from temptation, from sin. And we'll get to, you know, how that happens uh, later. So, and the other great um, thing that, a great line in this scene is is Henry Frankenstein's looking at all these miniature humans and these glass jars and they're kind of squeaking like Lilliputians, you know, and and Clive, Henry Frankenstein, Cole and Clive with that that classic British accents, like, but this isn't science. It's more like black magic, you know. And I, I kept thinking of that line all through the COVID uh, hysteria and uh, and that atrocity committed by our governments on the population. It's this isn't science. It's more like black magic. What a great line! So, um, uh, we cut from this scene. Um, where Pretorius again is petitioning Henry Frankenstein to work with him and say, you know, what we want to combine our work. I'm going to use my methods for part of it. And then he says to Henry, you did achieve natural size and we need you to help with that. And it seems like they have a deal and they, they say, we're going to create a woman this time. And that should be really interesting. So we cut from that scene to uh, the monster the exploits of the monster. He's wandering through the countryside. He sees a shepherd girl and she's, you know, tending her sheep on top of a, not a very high cliff. Let's say it's, it's maybe a story and a half. Um, and she falls from the cliff into a pool of water and she seems to be in distress. And the monster goes out and fishes her out, saves her. So again, we, we see that all through both films, the monster is constantly presented as a sympathetic character, somebody who really is looking for companionship and love, but is rebuffed at every turn um, because of his, his um, horrifying looks. And, um, and this, this is one thing that I, I want to point out that's different from, in the movies from the book. So in the book, um, the monster talks a lot more than he does. He doesn't talk at all in any of the Universal Frankenstein movies, except for this one, where he learns to talk, but he talks as somebody who is not very articulate, only says a few words at a time. In the book, he's very articulate. He learns to speak um, quite well, and he tells the reader his story and also tells other characters his story. And one of the things he talks about is his experience of being created and how he got up from the table and he said his mind was a completely blank slate. So this is, you know, the tabula rasa, which um, is something that's sometimes attributed to John Locke. He actually didn't use that term, but in his um, uh, essay on human understanding, uh, he, he uh, essay concerning human understanding, uh, he kind of um, articulates that theory, and other people also uh, built upon that. And I can't remember who coined the phrase tabula rasa, 
but the concept is kind of attributed to John Locke. And I, I guess the reason I bring this up is that in the book, the entire reason for the the monster's evil is the misery inflicted on him by other human beings. He starts out with no thoughts or sentiments at all, where in the movie, they they blame this all on the the bad brain. Remember the in the in the original movie. Um, Frankenstein needs a brain, and he he sends Fritz, played by Dwight Fry, Renfield from Dracula, out to uh, get the, you know, steal a brain from his his former professor's laboratory, Doctor Waldman, uh, who's played by Edward Van Sloan, who's Van Helsing from Dracula. So lots of familiar faces, and um, you know, Fritz goes in there. He gets scared by a, a loud bell or a gong that goes off. And he drops the brain he's trying to steal. And then instead he grabs the one that is labeled abnormal brain. And of course, if you've seen Young Frankenstein, this is just hilariously lampooned with the whole, you know, whose brain was it? Uh, Abby something. Uh, Abby normal. I believe that's who it was. <laughs> so um, uh, anyway, um, the, so the, the explanation in the movies is that he's got this criminal brain. He's got the brain of a former criminal, a, a dead criminal, and that's why he's evil. Um, so it really doesn't play all that well. It kind of, to me, that undercuts the story um, because the story is supposed to be about the misery inflicted on this poor creature by his irresponsible creator. And I want to get back to that. Because uh, I think that's where Mary Shelley was going. Um, and I think there's more to that theme than meets the eye. But in any case, um, he pulls the shepherd girl out of the pool. And he's kind of tapping her hand and, you know, <laughs> like Hollywood, you know. Uh, and as soon as she, you know, comes out of her momentary stupor, she sees the monster's face and starts screaming. And then he gets upset and he's waving his hand like at her in a menacing way. And uh, just at that moment, two villagers see him and they shoot him uh, and they hit him in the arm. And it's very funny because I'm, I'm sure this is intentional, but the monster grabs his arm and then he looks up at the villagers and he raises his arm and it, it turns out to be, you know, an, an old time obscene gesture that I can't believe would be accidental. So another little comic element in the movie, you could watch for that. Or if you missed it when you did watch it, then go back and take a look. So the monster runs off shot now and uh, we get the first villager chase of the scene. So we, we again have the villagers with the dogs and the torches and they're pursuing the monster through the forest and they finally get him cornered. And this is where the first of the Christ figure um, images comes in because what they do is they overwhelm the monster with numbers and they tie him to a pole. And when they raise the pole up, it's, uh, and they raise the pole up and they're all throwing rocks at him and, yelling and screaming and the torches and all that. And this is obviously an allusion to the crucifixion. He's, he's kind of in the right position, although his wrists are more, cr not crossed, but they're, 
they're not stretched out like a cross, but they're they're more with the elbows bent. But in any case, you can't miss it. It looks like a crucifixion. And they take him back to town. Uh, they kind of plop him down into this um, cart full of hay. They take him back to town and they put him in this dungeon where this enormous chair, which uh, would only fit a giant, just happens to be standing by. Looks like it's been there for about 500 years. And the chair has chains for the person's arms and legs. And they put the shackles around him. And then in order to, you know, tighten them and and secure them to the floor, they start pounding these spikes into the floor. And with every pound, you know, you, you, you hear like this loud, uh, the, the, the hammer, the mallet hitting this metal spike and the monster grimaces with each strike. And this is again, in case you missed the crucifixion uh, motif, we're going to make sure we hit you over the head with it. So you're sitting there thinking, well, why? What's all this Christ imagery doing with the the monster? And I believe you have to wait for the the film to run its course to really figure that out. So um, they they um, nail the monster to this chair, nail the chains that are attached to his arms and legs to the floor. Uh, and then the, um, Burgermaster again comes out with a whole bunch of, you know, thank goodness I was here. This, you know, I've now got more important matters to deal with. I dealt with this monster thing that you're all so afraid of. And while he's beating his chest about how wonderful he is right behind him, the monster breaks out of the, (laughs) the prison that he's in and starts terrorizing the town. Now, here's an interesting thing. I can't remember if I got this from the Borgo Pass guys or if I read it in Clive's autobiography, or not autobiography, or not. But the monster then is assumed to go on a a murder rampage. But there's a good case to be made that the murders that happened during that scene, right after you see him chasing people through the streets, are not committed by the monster, but rather may be committed by another character. And one of the things that happens is he there's a little girl is killed. And this is kind of inconsistent with the monster. The monster likes little girls. Um, he wants to be friends with Maria. He doesn't kill her intentionally in the first movie. And it just seems out of character for him to go and kill people without cause. Up until now, he's always had some reason to kill the people he, he's killed. So, um, you know, th- th- there's a theory that perhaps the murderer Carl, who's one of uh, Praetorius's henchmen, took advantage of the monster being loose to commit some murders uh, of his own or so- or some other character. So, I'll just leave that hanging there for you to to ponder. It's not crucial to the uh, rest of the story, but it is a, a good theory because really, again, these murders are a little out of character for the monster. Um, and and during this this series of discovering bodies, <laughs> um, we get Una Connor again, um, you know, announcing that they found uh, Herr Newman. 
And then, oh, up here, there's another one, Frau Newman. And she says, she says it three or four times, Frau Newman. And of course, this is what they're lampooning in, uh, in Young Frankenstein with the Frau Blucke thing. Uh, and the horse keeps, you know, whinnying every time she says it. Um, so now the monster again is loose. He's, he's left town. And this is where he comes to the, um, the hut of the blind hermit. And, you know, he goes in and of course the hermit's not afraid of the monster because, uh, he's blind. So he's kind of a, a godsend to the monsters. Here's somebody who will treat me like a person wants to be friends with me, um, is not terrified just to look at me cause he can't see me. And so this hermit takes him in the hermit's very religious and he's very, you know, uh, empathetic towards the monster. You're hurt. Let me take care of you. He feeds the monster and he, he, he gets the monster, um, you know, a cot and the monster is laying in bed and, you know, they, there's this dramatic speech by the hermit, you know, that the Lord has sent him a friend to keep him company and, you know, da, 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 da. And the monster's bawling here. Okay. So again, this is like a little over the top on purpose. It's kind of campy, you know, that there's this dramatic scene, but notice that it's two men, right? And I think that's important. This whole hermit's dynamic, I think, is another little joke, inside joke by James Whale. And I'll explain that in a minute. But as the monster falls asleep, you see there's a crucifix over his, his cot. Um, and as the scene fades to black, the crucifix gets even brighter and lingers long after the scene is black. You still have this crucifix on, on the screen. So again, you're being hit as hard as one can be hit over the head with this Christian imagery, this Christ the monster's a Christ figure. If you didn't get it from the crucifixion scenes, I'm telling you again, right? So um, the monster then spends some amount of time with the hermit where the hermit teaches him to talk. He uh, teaches him uh, to smoke cigars. He gives him some wine. The monster likes the wine. Um, there's the whole motif with the monster being afraid of fire and the hermit shows no fire can also be good. Um, and that's a short lived, uh, sentiment for the monster given how that whole episode with the hermit ends. Uh, but they're very good friends. And, and this is the, the, the one point I would say in all of the monster's life in both movies where he's truly happy. And I think James whale is doing something here. Now, if you don't already know, James Whale was gay at a time where I believe, I know it was still illegal to engage in homosexual activity in England and probably still in America, maybe in some states, not others, but Whale was also English. So he was literally breaking the law uh, by being homosexual. Um, and um, of course there wasn't acceptance of that back then socially, regardless of the legal implications. So what's he doing here with the hermit scene? I want to say that in many, many, especially golden age Hollywood movies, um, the plot revolves around, you know, a, a, 
an idyllic time that's usually like a, the man who meets, you know, the right woman for him or vice versa. And there's a happy time. And then some incident occurs that breaks them up or, you know, makes the, sets them apart. Something happens and they're, they're taken away from that, that happy um, time and thrust into, you know, the, the conflict that will be resolved at the end of the movie. What comes to mind is Random Harvest uh, from the 1940s. I think it was 46, somewhere around there with Ronald Coleman and uh, Greer Garson. And that one where the plot is that he's this rich guy who um, gets amnesia during World War One, And while he has amnesia and doesn't know who he is, he falls in love with Greer Garson. They get married. They have a child. And then he gets hit by a car. He's going to town to like register the kid with the local town. And uh, he gets hit by a car before he gets back. And then he remembers who he really is and doesn't remember Greer Garson or having the child or living in the cottage or any of that. So it's like in most of these films, and even I'm thinking now of Raising Arizona, the salad days when they were both married and happy. And then something happens where that follows everything up. Um, so with the monster, it isn't being married to a woman, of course, it's his time living with another man. And there's no suggestion that there's a sexual relationship between the monster and the hermit. But I think just the fact that it's like James Whale saying, here's my version of your, you know, of that, uh, plot, uh, device where, um, I'm not going to have him married to some woman and, you know, whatever he's going to be with another guy. Okay. So I think again, that's whale just tweaking. He loved to tweak people's noses. And, uh, I think this whole movie sets the fact that he makes the monster a Christ figure. And of course, you know, the Christianity would be a big reason why, um, homosexuality was not accepted. And, you know, I, I, I interpret it as him saying, well, here's your Christ figure, (laughs) the monster, right? Um, but I think there's more to it than that. But I, I do think this is whale being playful this way. Um, so the, the hermit scene ends badly when two uh, hikers, one of whom is John Carradine, uh, arrives at the hermit's hut. They're lost in the woods and they want to get directions. And, um, you know, they see the monster and the hermit's like, oh, come on in, you know, have a drink. Or what? he he offers his hospitality as he did to the monster. These two guys say, oh, my God, that's the monster that's been terrorizing the countryside. Um, you know, they try to shoot him again. And in, in struggling with the monster, they set the hermit's uh, cottage on fire. And, of course, the, the, they, they get the, the monster runs out screaming. Uh, looking for his friend, and uh, they lead the uh, the hermit away, so he's not killed. So everybody gets out alive, but of course the hermit's hut is burned to the ground. He's now homeless, and the whole idyllic uh, happy time for the monster is over. So now he's back on the run. We have the second chase scene, which ends with the monster running into a cemetery and he 
he actually goes down into an underground crypt to get away from the villagers with the dogs and the torches. And it's kind of funny on the, the way he gets down there is there's a statue of a bishop, I believe. I'm not sure if it's a particular bishop or a saint, but the monster like pushes it over <laughs> and the statue is rather big. It's, you know, twice as big as the monster tall and uh, it, it falls over and its head breaks off. So um, I'm sure that was another little, you know, sacrilege that uh, whale was putting in there. Um, and he goes down into this crypt and he's looking at a, uh, a dead girl that's, uh, that's down there, not, not covered. I can't remember, uh, off the top of my head at the moment, but he, um, oh no, I'm sorry. He's looking at, um, a coffin. Eventually he hears noises and it's Praetorius and two criminals that Praetorius has hired to assist him to come in and rob a grave uh, as part of their project. And that's when they um, they open the coffin of what was a young girl. And um, uh, in this movie, the two henchmen, one of them, uh, the, the chief one, Carl, is played by Dwight Fry. So he's... he's um, he was he was Fritz in the original Frankenstein. He was Renfield in Dracula, and now here he is as Carl Praetorius's assistant, one of two. And they go in to open this coffin, and of course, this unnerves Carl and his companion. And Praetorius is tut tutting them, telling them, "Oh, come on!" And uh, they get this this um, they they open it and they find this this girl that who died young, and. Uh, I should say young woman. And I don't mean to imply this is like a preteen girl. There's like a young 19, 20 year old woman. And, uh, you know, Carl, uh, Dwight Fry's uh, character comes out with the line, pretty little thing in her way. Wasn't she, you know, so as only he could say it, you know, just picture Renfield saying that line, it's the same voice. And, uh, so they go and get their work done. And apparently what Praetorius wanted was the skeleton because you see Praetorius then uh, with the bones piled up neatly on top of a um, another coffin. And he's uh, getting his like dinner out. He's got some cold chicken and he's got some wine. And uh, so the monster comes wandering up after the two, the two criminals leave. And by the way, when the criminals leave, um, you know, they're so unnerved by the job they just had to do. Now, of course, you know, they're wanted, at least one of them is wanted for murder. But uh, Dwight Fry's character says to the other one, what do you say if, if it's any more like this? Let's turn ourselves in and let them hang us. <laughs> so you got you got that uh, line. Dwight Fry is just fantastic in this. He's not he doesn't have a big part. But there's really not too many parts he ever did that he wasn't just over-the-top good. Um, so the monster comes and meets Pretorius, and uh, Pretorius is not at all frightened of him. And the monster is doing his friend, friend, you know, um, thing, and uh, Pretorius says, well, I hope so, <laughs> you know. And uh, so he tells the monster, first he gives the monster some wine, he gives him some chicken, 
Praetorius has this this line throughout the movie, you know, when he first sees when Henry Frankenstein comes to his house to see the little miniature people, he tells him, do you like gin? It's my only weakness. And then he tells the monster, try the wine. It's my only weakness. And um, so that's a kind of a recurring joke. And Thesiger, Ernest Thesiger, who plays Pretorius, is just, like I said, he steals every scene. Um, so he enlists the monster's help uh, to make sure that Henry follows through on creating the bride because he's still obviously not sure that Henry's fully committed and his suspicions are not without merit because Henry will eventually refuse to go through with it. And this is another interesting departure. Well, I shouldn't say it's a departure from the book, but the book Frankenstein by Mary Shelley has the bride story in it. So um, in the book, you know, after the monster has committed some murders against, you know, to members of Henry Frankenstein's family, he, um, the, he makes a deal that he'll go away uh, and go up into, you know, the North country, the North pole, whatever, somewhere where there's no people, but Frankenstein's got to make him a companion first, make him a bride. So Frankenstein agrees at first to do it, and then he later reneges on his promise. And he he has created the bride, but he hasn't brought her to life yet, and he destroys the body before he gives it life. And then the, the monster, this is the monster's motivation. The monster tells him to beware his wedding night. And, uh, you know, foreshadowing that the monster is going to come and kill Frankenstein's wife, Elizabeth. So in the, mo- in the first movie, Frankenstein goes after, um, I'm sorry, the monster goes after Elizabeth on their wedding day. And uh, there's really no explanation for why he's after her or how he even knows who she is. But that just comes out of the book. And again, the motivation there was uh, that that uh, Victor Frankenstein in the book had uh, reneged on his promise to make a bride. So that part of it is kind of infused into the Bride of Frankenstein, where um, Praetorius comes back to visit Frankenstein, says, "I'm ready to start work," and Frankenstein says, "No, I'm not gonna. I'm not going through with it." And then uh, uh, Praetorius says, "Well, I was afraid of that." And he goes, perhaps this, you know, other person can convince you or whatever. He opens the door and there's the monster. And you've got a great scene, again, uh, something that alludes back to the original movie where the monster walks in and Frankenstein is, you know, of course, horrified to see him. And the monster now talks and he tells Henry Frankenstein to sit down and, and uses the same gesture that Colin Clive had used in the original movie to tell the monster to sit down, sit down, you know, but the Boris Karloff says, sit down. <laughs> and, uh, so, um, so that's a, just a nice little, uh, scene there by, uh, whale. Um, and basically, uh, Henry Frankenstein says, look, I'm not going to discuss this while he's here. So Praetorius tells the monster to leave, but as he's closing the door, I think he says the word now, if I'm, I'm not uh, remembering incorrectly. And uh, that's his cue to the monster to go kidnap Elizabeth. 
So the monster goes and kidnaps uh, Frankenstein's wife, Elizabeth, and they use that as leverage to uh, get Frankenstein to uh, work on the bride as he had previously uh, promised. So this kind of brings us into the final um, scenes of the movie. And we finally find out what all the Christ imagery was about. So um, Frankenstein's working on the uh, on the bride, and and they've got a heart beating, and then the heart fails, and some more great Colin Clive stuff. He's like, "This heart's no good. I must have another," you know. Um, so they got to go get another heart, and uh, and so Pretorius sends Carl Dwight Fry's character out to find him a new heart. And, uh, you know, it's, um, it's pretty apparent how he's going to get this heart and how he got it once he comes back with it. And then all of a sudden, Henry Frankenstein becomes suspicious because the heart is so, you know, fresh and, and working so well. Like, Where did you get this, by the way? And, uh, and uh, uh, Pretorius, uh, like, mouths the answer to Fry's, like, he mouths the words police case and uh and Dwight Fry says, It was a, a police case. Um so in other words, you know, they're 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 look at Frankenstein isn't too curious. He it's almost like he just wants to um go through the pretense of of making sure that no foul play occurred here to get him this heart, but you're not very convinced. He's he's too easy to convince that this is all on the up and up. So they've obviously killed somebody to get this heart. Carl has, which is important. And then we have the creation scene of, of the bride and, um, and they start up all the whirring machines and all that. These machines, by the way, were made by a contractor, um, that, uh, his name was Strick Fadden, I believe Strick Fadden, um, who, own the machines themselves to kind of lease them out to the movies. And they appear in Hollywood movies for decades. Like you go get Strick Fodden's machines in, in movies that were not even made by Universal. So um, that was just kind of interesting. Um, if they look familiar, even in the 1950s, you know, 30, 20 years later, yeah, those are probably the same guy's machines. I think he lived into the 80s and they might have used them I can't remember the movie, but there's a movie in the eighties even where they use these machines. So, um, so they were around for a long time. Um, and, uh, so they, they do the whole thing. She's on the slab. She gets, you know, sent up to the, the lightning and, and the machines are whirring. And while this is happening, um, Carl Dwight Fry's character is, is on the roof of the, uh, the um, watchtower where they're they're same place they they had made the monster and uh, the monster goes up and kills him. He like, you know, throws him off the the top of the roof. Uh, He's hitting him with a torch or something first. And then he, and then he, he kills Carl. And um, that's important. I'll get that to a minute. Then he goes back downstairs and the bride, you know, comes to life it's alive. She's alive. Instead of it's alive this time, it's she's alive. Um, 
and they they unbandage her, and you get what I think we're supposed to understand is a little passage of time where they put her in kind of like a bridal gown. Now there's still bandages on her arms. And, um, you know, Elsa Lanchester is quite attractive and it's, it's hard to make her look scary. She's got like a scar on her neck, but she looks more like a, you know, kind of a hot punk girl than, (laughs) than, um, than a monster really. Right. And, uh, so there's this, this great scene where they say, you know, Pretoria says the bride of Frankenstein and you hear wedding bells and they are both holding her each, each of her hands. They're both standing on either side of her. And so that mirrors that scene at the beginning of the movie with uh, the same actress where it was Shelley and Byron on either side of her. Now it's Frankenstein and Pretorius. Of course, when she sees the, the monster, he's comes a courting. And with the friend, friend stuff, and um, she just starts screaming in horror. And then, you know, he, she kind of stumbles over to a couch aided by Henry Frankenstein. There's some indication she might be somewhat enamored of Henry Frankenstein as well. Like she may be looking at him. That's rather subtle. You could judge for yourself. I've, I've heard people say that. But in any case, she goes and sits on the couch and uh, the monster makes a second try to go and hold her hand, and she just starts screaming again, obviously repulsed by him. And he says something to the effect of, she hate me like the others. Um, and he's obviously now completely despairing that he'll ever, ever have happiness again like he did with the hermit or in, in any way whatsoever. And the monster then decides he's going to blow up the laboratory using this lever that seems to have no other purpose. So so he walks over to this lever and he puts his hand to it and uh, Praetorius, you know, yells out, the lever, you know, don't touch that. You'll blow us all to atoms. It's like, well, what what's it doing there? What? <laughs> but um, so... Uh, at, at this point, Elizabeth has, has escaped from wherever they were holding her captive, and she's at the door screaming to come in. Henry says, no, you can't come in. He's about to be blown up. He doesn't want her to be blown up too. And uh, he tells her to go away. And the monster then says, no, no, you go to Henry Frankenstein. And then he looks at Pretorius and he says, you stay. You know, we belong dead. And then he, you know, just as Henry Frankenstein has has uh, run with Elizabeth far enough away from the castle, uh, the monster pulls the lever. The castle blows up, killing them all. Um, many people have pointed out that if you look closely in the scene right before he pulls the lever down, you can see that Colin Clive is actually still in in the room, like across on the back wall or something like that. So there was obviously a version of this where Henry Frankenstein dies as well, but instead Henry Frankenstein is saved by the monster. He's given a new life. And I think this is, you know, really where this whole Christ narrative comes full circle because not only has the monster saved Henry, given his own life um, voluntarily and allowed uh, Henry 
to go on with his, his life, forgiven of his sins. Now, after all, Henry Frankenstein is the reason any of this happened. He created the monster. So whatever has happened as a result of this, that's all on Henry Frankenstein, and the monster is absolving. He's deciding to die himself instead of Henry. So this is kind of the, the Christ narrative, right? There's another thing that the monster, another role, Christ-like role that the monster plays, and that is the so-called judge of the quick and the dead. So what's he done? He's killed Carl, who was a murderer. He's killing Pretorius, who has identified himself as the very devil in that previous scene and has acted as the devil, constantly tempting Henry and then finally coercing him into doing the thing that Henry knows is wrong. So <clears throat> the monster is is meeting out justice at the end of this movie um, and also giving his life uh, to save Henry's, not only his Henry's life, but his soul, really, because he is um, taking away, he, he's not bringing back any of the people that the monster murdered, that he murdered, but he's at least um, getting rid of the evil that Henry brought into the world, and along with it, the devil, <laughs> Pretorius, uh, and and so that's the end of the movie. the 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 um, The watchtower blows up. The Frankenstein uh, equipment is presumably destroyed for all time until the next sequel, which wasn't planned at that time. And uh, Henry's seen, you know, kind of in a scene reminiscent of the end of Dracula, where uh, uh, David Manners and uh, Mina are, are kind of looking off into the sunset. Same thing with Henry and Elizabeth. They're presumed to live happily ever after. And that's the end of the film. So I think all of that works uh, thematically. And I, I would say that Everything I've described so far, I would be surprised if it wasn't the intent of the writers or James Whale, um, just the producers of the film in general, because it works too well. But I want to suggest one other layer, and this goes for the film as well as for the book, which is... You know, the take on Frankenstein is that, and, and the Mary Shelley character says this at the beginning of the of Bride of Frankenstein, that she was telling a moral tale of the fate that defell, uh, befell a man who dared to encroach upon God or things that God are reserved for God, like creating life. And that's fine. And again, that all works. And of course, that's what happens is it, it all turns out badly. But I would suggest that both Mary Shelley in the book and perhaps James Whale, maybe not even consciously, have another theme that overlays this. And that is that all of the monster's grievances with his creator are really symbolic of our own grievances with our creator. And I, I can't believe that somebody of Mary Shelley's background and being kind of a radical that she was, um, wasn't doing this intentionally. And I guess what I'd, I'd say is, okay, so the monster is 
created with the capacity for love, but the capacity for evil and murder. He's ugly. He's shunned. He feels alone. Uh, he feels like his life is barren. And these are all complaints that a person could make of God, right? So you could have created us. We're supposedly created in your in your own image, but aren't we ugly compared to the creator? Aren't we sinful and murderous or, or have the capacity to be murderous? Why did you do that? Why did you make us this way? Why did you make us to suffer? This doesn't make any sense. Um, I think that the story works as an indictment of the creation itself or the, or the um, condition of man himself, herself. Um, and I can't believe that that wasn't something that was in Mary Shelley's mind, uh, if not in James Wales. But boy, wouldn't it fit very well with James Whale, a gay man in the 1930s or the first half of the 20th century, who would have also felt like an outcast, somebody who um, you know was created this way as as far as he was concerned, and and he didn't ask for it, and because of it he shunned. Um, and regardless, even if he wasn't gay, uh, like isn't this the way many many people feel? Um, and the reason that I I really think that there's some merit to that thesis is that the 19th century was a time when a lot of people were writing a lot of things like this. And I wanted to give you another example from Mark Twain. Uh, if you've read a story by him called The Mysterious Stranger, I think you might know what I'm referring to. And if you haven't, I won't spoil that whole story for you, but I will tell you there's a character in the story named Satan. It takes place in the Middle Ages, I believe in Vienna, but I could be wrong because I haven't read this in 20 years either. But I just pulled up an online version of it. What stuck with me is that there's the same kind of indictment of God in the end of Mysterious Stranger. And uh, Satan is not exactly the Satan. He's a very ambiguous figure. He's a very mysterious figure. He's not necessarily the embodiment of evil. You don't really know what he is as you're reading the story, but he has these supernatural powers, or he seems to. And at the end of the movie, he makes this speech to the main character, and I won't tell you why he said it, but he says these words, strange that you should have not suspected years ago, centuries, ages, eons ago, for you have existed companionless through all the eternities. Strange indeed that you should not have suspected that your universe and its contents were only dreams, visions, fiction. Strange because they are so frankly and hysterically insane, like all dreams. A God who could make good children as easily as bad, yet preferred to make bad ones, who could have made every one of them happy, yet never made a single happy one who made them prize their bitter life yet stingily cut it short, who gave his angels eternal happiness unearned yet required his other children to earn it, who gave his angels painless lives yet cursed his other children with biting miseries and maladies of mind and body, 
who mouths justice and invented hell, mouths mercy and invented hell, mouths golden rules and forgiveness multiplied by 70 times 7 and invented hell, who mouths morals to other people and has none himself, who frowns upon crimes yet commits them all, who created man without invitation, then tries to shuffle the responsibility for man's acts upon man instead of honorably placing it where it belongs, upon himself. And finally, with altogether divine obtuseness, invites this poor abused slave to worship him. So this is the speech that's given at the end of Mysterious Stranger by Mark Twain with his pen warmed up in hell, as he described it. And... It's, it's kind of a recurring theme that other writers write about it, that the, that our conception of the universe and, you know, the, the Judeo Christian God and, uh, and the story and the morality that we're here, we're questioning it. It doesn't make sense to us. Um, so, um, I, I think there's something of that in Frankenstein. I, I can't believe that, um, Shelley didn't intend for us to pick up on the similarity of our relationship to God and the monster's relationship to his creator. So that's another one I leave you to ponder, and maybe we'll leave it there because I've been going pretty long on this one. Um, Again, probably my favorite, one of my favorite films of all time, you know, I, there are others that contend for that uh, spot for me. This is certainly my favorite in the horror genre, even though it's not really a scary movie. Uh, it really is a, just a work of art, as most of James Whale's films were. And um, I think there's just so much there, much more than almost any other uh, horror movie of the period, uh, really, of the 20th century. So I hope you enjoyed this and I'm looking forward. I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do next, but uh, keep an eye out for Tom Mullen Talks Movies and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.